Father in heaven, now we pray for your Holy Spirit to give us a spirit of enlightenment, an ability to understand today, and an ability to understand what goes beyond the ability of our senses to perceive. This is called faith. Help us to see that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our key text for this series this fall is 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And I say fall, it's actually finally fall, right? So that's good. So you can't tell outside, but it is fall in lots of places. But our key text is 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and we read these words. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So we started digging deeper into faith, hope, and love last Sabbath. And we started with faith, and and the title last week was, It All Begins With Faith. Now, I heard something this past week that I think brilliantly made the point that we were making last Sabbath, and I want to read it to you. This came in answer to a question, upon what should our faith be based? So this is the question that launched what I'm going to read you. So here it is, and I've got it on the screen because I want you to see this. I would answer the question based on my personal experience. My faith is built on Jesus. Okay, I want you to recognize that this is a form of the core confession we were talking about last Sabbath, that who do you say I am? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the only foundation we can build our faith on. So this person, in their response, said, my faith is built on Jesus, which includes the love I know he has for me. His life and death here on earth was miraculous beyond all measure. He died a brutal death carrying the sins of all fallen man just so that we can spend an eternity with him. What greater love than that? In addition to that, he reveals himself all through the Bible so that we might glimpse his love for humanity. He also sends his Holy Spirit to guide and protect us. He also allows challenges. Now, I want you to notice the the inside of this parenthetical, some of which are the consequences of our own actions so that we can learn to lean on Him to carry us through. All of this plays out in a million different ways, and Jesus' hand is in all of this. We are transformed by His love, but real love is deep and wide. Love has no room for fear or doubt. Both lead to testing faith. Now, now here, this is just gold right here. I want you to hear this. I am striving for perfect love so that I have perfect faith, and only Jesus makes this possible. That is really good. You have blessed me by asking this question. I hope you and the girls have a day filled with love and peace with all my love. And that, in case you don't recognize it, that is what is called outstanding practical theology. And you don't have to get a theology degree to know this. You just have to live your life with your eyes fixed on Jesus. And that is what the person who texted these words did. That was a text. I don't think most of my texts are that profound. I need to step it up a little with my texting. That, that is a good text. So who's our mystery theologian this Sabbath? Well, the sad truth is we won't be hearing any more from her for a while. For you see, our mystery theologian was Nancy Temple. 
one of our members who the Lord brought to this place and who carved out a home for herself amongst us. She imperfectly lived out her faith before us, particularly in her Sabbath school and in House of Prayer, our Wednesday night service, from the time she arrived here some 10 years ago until the day just a little over two two weeks ago when she finally succumbed to cancer and passed away. Now, now those are powerful words, right? Now, I want you to know something about those words. She wrote that text on August 6, 2018. And she passed away September 6, 2018, exactly one month later. And I want you to know that so that you're not thinking in your head, oh, well, she must have written that when everything was going well. No. This is what was on her heart, even as she knew her life was slipping away. In case you don't recognize it, this is what faith is, and this is what faith does to a person. Faith will give you keen spiritual insight. Something else faith will give you. Faith will give you Hupomone. We've talked about that word a lot of time, that Greek word from a few years back that means patient endurance. To be able to say words like that within a month of when the cancer that is tearing you up is going to take your life, that's hupomone. That's what it looks like. And faith will give you the ability to transform tribulation into hope. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. I am not bestowing sainthood on Nancy, not by a long shot. Just like the rest of us, she had her issues. But I do want you to hear her words and be inspired. I want you to see what faith can make of you and how faith will carry you through the hardest times. Why do I want to do that? Well, because when everything gets scraped away and when you know you're coming to your last days, I hope what will remain of your Christian experience will be the same thing that remained of Nancy's Christian experience. Faith, hope, and love. And so today we're going to continue to consider faith. Last Sabbath, we talked about the core confession of Christianity that we put our faith in, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. By faith, we believe the supernatural conviction that comes upon our heart from God. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father in heaven. In order for you to truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you must receive that conviction through the Holy Spirit from God himself because there is no way to prove that reality by our physical senses. When you confess and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that is the day that your Christian life begins. But here's the thing about that core confession. The core confession itself brings up another issue, something else that must be addressed. If Jesus is the Son of God, what's the obvious question? Who is God? Right? Remember, Jesus 
asked a question to his disciples, and we considered it last Sabbath. And I told you it's the most important question ever asked, and still the most important question being asked. Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And that's the question that comes to you. Is Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God? Your answer to this single question alone is the determiner of whether you are a Christian or not. If you believe He is, you are. If you don't, it doesn't matter what framework you've built around yourself. You're not. Yet, as I mentioned, this answer, you are the Christ, the Son of God, raises another question. If Jesus is the Son of God, who is God? Now, I'm going to save you a lot of time. We could spend going to a lot of different texts because, because uh, God is described in different ways in Scripture. There's a number of ways He can be identified, but there is one way in particular that I believe way more than any of the others is the dominant claim of identity for God. And here it is, the simplest place it's given. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The primary identity statement about God is that He is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, we could get off on a long discussion here uh, about the Trinity and the role of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and what they played, their role in creation. And no doubt I would enjoy that way more than you would. So, that being the case, while there may be some value in that discussion, that discussion is what we call theology and maybe even call esoteric theology because it's kind of over there and really it probably not the most important thing we could argue about because it's not one of the three that remain, is it? Now again, I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. Theology, practice, structure, and process are important, but they're not what's most important. They're not what remains. If Here's where you can understand what I'm saying. If, while taking your last breaths in this life, you are consumed with thoughts about what role exactly did Jesus play in creation, or if, while taking your last breaths, you are consumed with wondering what exactly are the ten nations mentioned in Daniel 7, or if, while breathing your last, the only thing you can think of is making sure that the order of service for your funeral is in perfect order. If this is what's happening to you, you're not doing it right. What should you be doing on your deathbed? Here it is. It's very simple. Take notes if you need it. You should be expressing your faith in Jesus. You should be testifying to your hope in the resurrection. And you should be verbalizing your love for the ones you love. Faith, hope, love. Don't waste your last breath on the things that pass away. Use your last breath to speak of faith, hope, and love. 
You know how inspiring it is to be with someone who is in the closing moments of their life and all they can do is talk about their love for Jesus? Be that person. But I digress here. Let's get back to the point. Namely, the identity that God has claimed. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, for most of history, this was not considered a controversial statement. I mean, it all had to come from somewhere, right? And it's not like anyone had an alternate explanation. I suppose each culture had an alternate God, but they all had some sort of notion that there were super powerful gods who created the earth and everything in it one way or another. Everyone just sort of took it by faith. And it's only been the last several hundred years since the Enlightenment that claiming there was no God was not considered a mental condition. You were crazy in any other era to say there was no God. So let me ask you this. Does the fact that in our day many people claim that, does that make us smarter than all the generations before or the dumbest humans to ever live because we missed the most obvious point? I don't know. I guess that depends on your starting point, right? It all depends on what you believe. And another word for what we believe is faith. Yet today we find ourselves living in a time where speaking of a creator God in public discourse is at best frowned on and more typically treated with a certain degree of disdain or bemusement by our hearers. This is the age of science, and while one might be allowed to believe on the side such a thing as a creator God, it's assumed that we wouldn't talk about it in public society, in polite society. Peter Berger, an Austrian-born American Lutheran sociologist who's known for his work in the sociology of religion, coined a two-word phrase that I think is useful for us at this point. His phrase was plausibility structures. Berger defines plausibility structures as patterns of belief and practice accepted within a given society which determine which beliefs are plausible for its members and which are not. Plausibility structures decide what you can believe and be acceptable and what you can't believe and be acceptable. Berger goes on to say, these plausibility structures are, of course, different at different times and places. Thus, when in any society a belief is held to be reasonable, this is a judgment made on the basis of the reigning plausibility structure. That's why what was reasonable in another age can seem unreasonable in the current age. For the better part of the past 2,000 years, and indeed for the entire history of humans, the reigning plausibility structure of just about any people group was that some kind of a god somehow created the world. Now, there were differing views regarding the nature of this god and different rationales suggesting as to why he or she or it created in the first place, but essentially in every case, people believed some sort of god created the world. Yet, as mentioned before, things are different now than they were for most of human history, for now we live in what is often called the scientific age, or as Charles Taylor puts it in his book, a secular age, we live in an age of disenchantment. Now, he's not using that word like we usually use it. We usually say, disenchantment means I'm bored with this. But that's not what he's saying. 
Taylor is using disenchantment as a means to explain reality as, the, as opposed to the opposite of enchantment as a way to explain reality. This is what he's saying. There was a time when every big and little thing that happened that exceeded the capacity of our mind to understand, each of these happenings was automatically attributed to the workings of an unseen spirit world. Earthquakes, volcanoes, tropical storms, lightning, and even sudden onset human conditions like stroke or heart attack or appendicitis. In fact, even the word stroke itself implies some sort of outside spiritual attack to explain this bizarre reality that's happened to someone. All of these things, or even just bad luck, all of these things were attributed to a spirit attack or to spirit interference. The world was perceived to be full of spiritualism and magic, and to be superstitious within that plausibility structure was not silly, it was totally reasonable. See how plausibility structures change what we perceive to be reasonable. This view of, of reality is what Taylor calls the enchanted view. But the disenchanted view is the opposite. Everything occurs by natural cause. That's the disenchanted view. So which is it? Well, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Is it an either-or question? Or is it a both-and question? As humans got better and better at understanding the world, the natural causes approach gained credibility because, frankly, natural causes is an approach that works extremely well. Most things that happen in the physical world around us have explainable causes that we can detect and discern and based on that often predict or mitigate. There aren't too many people claiming that Hurricane Florence was a mysterious thing that happened. It was predicted before it happened, right? So this change in perspective from assuming reality was beyond understanding to assuming that by observation reality could be understood and the future predicted led to a radical change in the basic epistemology of reality. Now that's a really big word, but I'm using it because it's important here and I'll explain to you what that word means. Epistemology is actually one of those compound words. You recognize ology right at the end, biology, theology, physiology, sociology, that word means study of. And then the first part of it is actually a preposition word that, that if you actually went back to its literal meaning, it means to stand upon. So epistemology is the study of the things we stand upon. In other words, it's an attempt to philosophically understand our preconceived notions by which we make decisions about the world. It is epistemology that creates our plausibility structure. What we believe in our mind determines what we are capable of understanding in reality. And this has become a problem for us because in our day the dominant epistemology is that all of reality can be understood by the use of our physical senses alone. And anything we don't understand in that manner by using our physical senses is either unimportant or we just haven't figured it out yet. 
Now, in many ways, this approach has served us very well. This is the approach that gave us medicine. That's good. It gave us air travel. It gave us air conditioning, to which we are tempted to say thank God. But should we maybe say thank science? I don't know. That's a tough one, right? Weather forecasting. And even sociological perspectives like the equality of all humanity, male or female, regardless of race or national origin, all have come to exist or gained credibility as a result of the rationalistic, naturalistic epistemology of our day. The problem is this epistemology that on the one hand has served us so well has on the other created for us what I believe is an untenable plausibility structure that has trapped us and much of Christianity into playing a game we cannot win. And what is the cardinal rule of the unwinnable game we find ourselves in? Here's the cardinal rule. If you can't prove it to my senses, I won't believe it. All of which brings us back to the identity claim of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's not like this is the only time this claim is made. It is the unswerving, unchanging core testimony of the Bible that God is the creator of all things. You'll find it in 27 different books. A very simple search on any Bible software will easily give you over 100 references where God is established as creator. Yet I defy any of you to prove that to me using my senses alone. You see, God as creator does not fit the plausibility structure of our day because the notion of a transcendent, powerful, personal being who exists beyond what I can perceive with my senses must, by definition, be ruled unbelievable on an a priori basis by the epistemology of the day that will not allow that to occur. Yet so often you see well-meaning believers attempting to convince unbelievers and sometimes attempting to convince themselves by means of proofs based on physical senses. But in my mind, this is mostly a fool's errand, for it seeks to prove the Creator God by the tools and the means of a plausibility structure that has already ruled the existence of God out. Now, this is not to suggest that there is no value in studying the physical world from the, perception, from the perspective of a creationist. Far from it, for God has given us the physical world as another means by which we can learn of Him. You, you've heard this psalm, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Yet here's the thing. You can only hear their proclamation of God's glory if you exist in a plausibility structure that allows for the existence of God. Otherwise, all you will see when you look into the heavens is millions of light years and spheres of fire, all of which exist only by default and certainly not for any divine revelatory purpose. You've already ruled it out before you look. But I will tell you this, it is at this very point that I take heart. For you see, it seems to me, regardless of the change of the current 
current plausibility structures, there remains a place in almost every human on the earth today where when they look into the heavens, there is a larger voice, a voice of a creator that they cannot hear with their ears, yet that they hear somewhere deep inside of themselves, a resonance that cannot be explained with the five senses. That voice is, I believe, the voice of the Holy Spirit sent out into all the world. And what is the means by which we hear the voice of the Spirit? Faith. Which brings us to where we will close today with what I believe is one of the most profound texts in all the Bible. Maybe it never struck you as profound before today, but I hope it will from now on because in this simple verse, we find words that demolish the walls of the plausibility structure of our time. So here we go. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Okay, I'm going to read that to you again because this is absolutely the destroyer of the plausibility structure of our day. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. It's the first four words there that really blow my mind. By faith, we understand. It doesn't say by proof we understand, does it? It doesn't say by evidence we understand, does it? It doesn't say, because we were standing there when it happened, we understand, does it? No. By faith, we understand. So what's the implications here? Well, for one thing, creation science is never going to be able to prove the Creator. For the Creator is greater than anything our senses can ever determine. But at the same time, secular science, the approach demanded by the plausibility structure of our time, will never disprove God as creator, even if its findings seek to claim that they have done so. Why? Well, two main reasons. Number one, the very methods employed have, by epistemology, ruled God out before any study even begins. Therefore, by default, rendering the researcher blind to what they have predetermined not to see. You can't use the tools of a structure that says there's no God and then claim to have proved there's no God. That's called circular reasoning. Second, it is only by faith that we can begin to understand a work as glorious as God's creation. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So, so faith, we're talking about faith, so, so let's, let's go there. By faith we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There are no proofs you can give me good enough to prove that. I must believe it by faith. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's faith. Second, by faith we believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So by believing the first statement of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that defines who I am and what I will become. By believing the second, that in the beginning God created in the heavens and the earth, that gives my life purpose and gives my life meaning. The one makes me who I am. The other gives me purpose and meaning. What is the greatest need in our society today? We have no idea who we are. We have no idea what we're doing here. Right? It all begins with faith. And regarding the most important things, only by faith can we understand. This is why faith is one of the three things that remains. Now, I need to say one more thing, and we're going to close with this. We cannot be iffy and squirrely on the issue of God as Creator. And while I'm not as dogmatic as some in the larger community of our Adventist faith with regards to the exact details of how God created, I'm just not sure I know that much about how God does stuff, all right? So I'm not out there making a whole lot of claims. So while I'm not as dogmatic as some, I am dogmatic on a few things, and I'm going to put those up there because I think they matter, and I hope you'll be dogmatic on these things too. And here they are. Number one. The creation is the work of God. Not negotiating that point. Number two, creator is God's primary defining title. It's his identity statement. Who's God? Creator. You've answered it. Number three, creation reveals God's glory. And number four, God has not used in establishing His creation any tools or means that are of the domain of His enemy. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. No survival of the fittest in God's purpose. It is contrary to everything the gospel is about. It is overruled by the Beatitudes alone. Any system where the strong persecute the weak is absolutely contrary to God's purpose. And if He is revealed in Jesus Christ, then He did not use that method to create. It doesn't work. Now, notice, I'm not claiming that based on so-called evidence. I'm claiming that based on my belief that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came and revealed to us what God is like, and that approach is opposite of God. Number two, no death as a means to gain. Central to the notions of creation that do not have God speaking things into existence, embrace death as a means of gain. No, Scripture identifies death as an enemy, and God would never use an enemy to create a friend. We just can't use that. Now, now let me say this. It is by faith that I believe these things. 
And it is by faith that I hold to them regardless of the evidence anyone might try to bring to dissuade me. I cannot be neutral in the middle waiting for the evidence to come in. My belief is not based on physical evidence. By faith I understand these things to be true. And because of that, I can't be shaken on these. I don't interpret my faith based on the physical evidence. I interpret the physical evidence based on my faith. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So, so let's just put the arguments to rest. It is by faith that you believe and understand. The call of God to us today is a call to faith. To faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to faith that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is faith. And when all else has passed away, This is the only thing that will be left. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us faith that we might understand truth beyond what our senses can know. In Jesus' name, amen.